Any other opening thoughts on the proximal tubule? Yes, I'm upset that you said it's the big, dumb tubule section. I think it's like the Elizabeth Warren of tubules. It's like, I have a channel for that. You know, I have a transporter <laughs> for that. I got that. <laughs> I'm going to do most of the heavy lifting here. Yeah, and mo- and that's, yeah. Right. Think, that's right. That's right. Amen. And I think yep. that the transporters and channels in the proximal tubule are just as rich and exciting as serum itself. Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we are discussing Chapter 3, which in some way feels like the first chapter of the book. This is the first chapter that focuses on tubular physiology that is going to be the subject of the remainder of the book. I think the book is a bit of a fish out of water when it discusses the glomerulus, and now we are safely ensconced in the tubules. Tonight's crew includes Melanie. Why don't you introduce yourself, Melanie? Oh, hi there. Melanie Honig here from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Med School. Letty? And um, Leticia Rolona. I'm at UCSF and I also teach in the medical school. Roger? Roger Rodby, Rush Medical Center in Chicago. Amy? Amy Yao from the University of Arizona in Tucson. Josh? Josh Waitsman, nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And Anna. I'm Anna Gaddy. I'm a nephrology fellow at Indiana University. Excellent. So we are talking about the proximal tubule. It starts on page 71 with a nice summary. It says that the proximal tubule reabsorbs 55 to 60% of the filtrate. And really, the way I always thought about it was that the proximal tubule was all about kind of big, dumb reabsorption, that you have this leaky glomerulus that filters a ton of fluid, and in order for us to process it intelligently, we first need to reduce the volume. But it looks like it's actually a lot more sophisticated and subtle than I thought. Any other opening thoughts on the proximal tubule? I think it's, to me, it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger, because it does so much work, but it's Arnold Schwarzenegger with a PhD. How about that? (laughs) That would be Elizabeth Warren. That's Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren on one side, and we got Schwarzenegger on the other. That's, I'll tell you what, Pop, that's a ticket I'd vote for. (laughs) And one other thing, there's just so much rich physiology, so much going on with the different types of transport, the different types of channels, and it's, it's my favorite part. I thought that too when I was reading it, and then I thought, haven't gotten to the other ones yet, so. Yeah. So far. Fair, fair. It's my favorite. I will say as like an organizational structure to the chapter, and I think what we're going to see in the next couple of chapters, what I love about this approach is that it takes you through the, the section, and then it takes you back through the section again with every single ion as you go along and builds on itself. So we're probably going to start talking about sodium the most in the first, 
but we really build on our understanding of how the segment works by understanding sodium and then layering on top of it chloride and then layering on top of it the other anions and other small molecules that we'll talk about as we go along. If you haven't read this yet, be patient because I tried to figure it all out kind of on my own before it started going through the separate sections later. And I got some things right and some things wrong. And then as I read on, I was like, oh, I wish I would have waited for them to explain to me how bicarbonate's handled. Right. So the, the big picture here is it's going to reabsorb 65% of the sodium, 55% of the chloride, 90% of the bicarb, 100% of the glucose and amino acids. All of the water absorption is passive. And the whole way down the tubule, it's isoosmotic, right? So until we get to the, the tip of the loop of Henle, we've got a free water movement across the tubule walls. So we aren't able to build up any type of osmotic gradient here. We just went through what we reabsorbed, and then we secrete. The only things we secrete are hydrogen, organic ions, and organic cations. Is that right? Is that right? And then uric acid is really weird because it's both reabsorbed and secreted. That one was really complex. The anatomy we go is pretty quickly. There's an S1, S2, and S3. We talk about it a little bit in terms of the, the anatomy, but it didn't seem like it was super important. Anybody have any thoughts, any important aspects of the anatomy that they thought were important? I think the main one that stood out to me was the SGLT1 and 2 differences between the proximal proximal tubule and the distal proximal tubule sections that you really get SGLT2 in the most proximal section, which absor- well, we'll talk about it when we get to, to yeah, we'll get glucose, glucose co-transport. Right. But that's other right. than that, that's the real main difference that I could see. Anatomically, I think importantly that they mentioned the increased surface area in S1 because that's where the most resorption happens. So that makes sense. I mean, in terms of form and function, I didn't know that there were microvilli there. So microvilli are only area. in the S1 segment? That's That's unique to the S1? I don't think so. So I cracked open my medical school pathology textbook, and it turns out that the S1 segment does have the most dense concentration of microvilli. As you move through to the S2 and S3 segments, the epithelial cells become more cuboidal in appearance and have less microvilli, but all of the epithelial cells lining the proximal tubule do have some microvilli. Well, it's important to realize that the microvilli, the brush border is a proximal tubule issue, and it's all about surface area because it has to do all this work. You know, I did a little math before we started tonight to see, you know, how much is actually being absorbed. So if you if you take a, a glucose of 90 milligrams per deciliter, and, a, and I'm just going to use 140 liters a, a day as our uh, GFR, you're filtering about 126 grams of glucose. Uh, and that has to all be reabsorbed. If you don't reabsorb that, you're going to lose about 504 calories a day. So that's a significant amount of energy loss that, that you know you just can't afford to lose. But that's, of course, if you're not reabsorbing any glucose. Sodium, at, with a sodium, serum sodium of 140 at 140 liters, uh, reabsorbing 65%. That means we're reabsorbing 12,740 millicovolts of sodium, which is equivalent of reabsorbing 82 liters of normal saline. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this math is amazing. Wow. Bicarb. Bicarb at, uh, at a concentration of 24 with 90% reabsorption is 3,024 millicovalents of bicarb, which is 60 amps of bicarb. What? 60 amps. And then, of course, the water is the same as, you know, 84 liters of water because it's really it's the same as the saline because they're, they're kind of following each other. So, I mean, that really stresses what this thing is doing and yes. how remarkable it is and how important it is to be able to, be, to reabsorb all that because if it can't handle it, which we talked about in the past with the tubular granular feedback, I mean, you're, how much trouble you're really, really in. And so the most important molecule here is going to be the sodium potassium ATPase. And we're going to see this as a recurrent 
motif that this is what drives the energy recurrently through the kidney, right? We see this, we're going to see this in the loop of Henle, we're going to see this in the distal convoluted tubule. And so hello and welcome to the sodium potassium ATPase has tremendous importance here. And like it does throughout the body, excuse me, three sodium out, two potassium in. And this is going to generate a negative charge inside the tubule. And it's going to keep a low sodium concentration. In the in the chapter, they say the sodium concentration in the proximal tubule is going to be about 40 milliequivalents per liter inside, sodium concentration inside. Inside the cell. Inside the cell. And that's going to allow continuous reabsorption of sodium from the tubular fluid. And that's going to be essential for driving all the reabsorption that's going to happen uh, subsequently. Yeah, I think this idea of like inside of cells is very different than outside of cells is like a really important idea that we're touching on, I think, for the first time in this chapter. But that serum, that sodium of 140 that you're used to in your head, that becomes a potassium of like 100 and a zillion inside of a cell. And the cell, inside the cell is a very different world than outside the cell and the blood lab values that we're used to seeing. When when I teach it, I talk about it as two different atmospheres. You've got a sodium atmosphere outside the cell and you've got a potassium atmosphere inside the cell. So that's forty milliequivalent inside, inside the of sodium inside the proximal tubule. That's cell. what that's what the, that's what uh, Burton Rose says. That's got to be unique to um, much higher than right. The rest of this body, it's like four. Yeah, five, I mean, right? I, I so I'm a little surprised it's that high inside the cell, but maybe because you're constantly reabsorbing. That, I that, think that that's drives the key. it up a little bit. When you got to move eighty yeah. liters of normal saline through, you got to raise <laughs> the concentration a little bit. Well, and that was actually the interesting thing is that a third of this sodium reabsorption is all paracellular, right? That was something that that he emphasized and. And I thought was super fascinating the mechanisms in which the kidney and the proximal tubule saves energy by going around the cell or between the cells, however you want to say it. It's really cool stuff. So I'll say that this is a long chapter. I felt like it took a long time to read, but I think, you know, because of our team tight junction discussion two podcasts ago, we're going to save ourselves a lot of time and how we're able to kind of work through the, the material here. Right. So the key here is that the tight junction's not very tight, right? Correct. So yeah, unlike the the frog bladder that we discussed way back, <laughs> the the tightest of tight junctions, uh, the proximal tubule actually has the loosest of tight junctions, which really allows for maximal reabsorption of sodium and water via the paracellular pathway. Excellent. Excellent. The primary co-transporters that are going to allow sodium to be reabsorbed are going to be a sodium and amino acids, a sodium phosphate, sodium glucose, and then the countertransports, sodium in, hydrogen out. And I think that was the only example that he gave, and I can't think of another one. The organic anion transporters are more complex and not a sodium co-transporter. There's some information on the data on how they actually did the experiments where they show that glucose reabsorption is dependent on sodium being supplied. That If you increase the sodium available in these experimental models, you get increased glucose reabsorption. I don't think that's super important. Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think of a, of a clinical correlate to that. Like if you're certainly sodium delivery to the distal tubule is important, but sodium delivery to the proximal tubule, it all starts high. So I don't think you're ever going to be sodium limited there. Right. And the sodium concentration doesn't change as you move down the proximal tubule because every time you reabsorb sodium, you're reabsorbing water along with it. And so it's a, a kind of an iso. Am I right on this one? The concentration of sodium doesn't change as you move down the concentration gradient. He's got a nice graph of that. It's a figure figure one. And it, sodium and chloride are the really the only ones that exist like that. All the other ones have a decreased concentration as they move down the concentration gradient. I say moving down the concentration gradient. That's a mistake. What I meant to say is just moving distally through the proximal tubule.
Chloride goes up a little bit initially because bicarb is selective early. And that, and so. That's right. So this, so this is something that I didn't recognize, and he really leans into how important this is. And so that early in the proximal tubule, you preferentially reabsorb bicarbonate, right? We know that happens by secreting hydrogen, having carbonic anhydrase, combine that hydrogen with bicarbonate to form carbonic acid, which breaks down into CO2 and water. CO2 can cross the plasma membrane easily into the cell where it recombines with the hydroxyl group to reform the bicarbonate. So stoichiometrically, secreting hydrogen is the same thing as reabsorbing bicarbonate. And that preferentially happens early in the proximal tubule. And so you get most of your bicarb reabsorption early. That results in an increased relative concentration in, chlor- in chloride, which is going to be super important late. And he spends, he leads into the chloride reabsorption. Any other comments about the bicarb reabsorption that's important? Well, I think you did a really, off, off the cuff, did a nice job of explaining what happens. I think the remarkable thing about bicarb reabsorption is that you're not reabsorbing bicarb. You're really creating new bicarb by, by putting a hydrogen ion there's a bicarb combine. channel. You're not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's really you're not the bicarb that comes across. You don't. It's not like pulling glucose across with sodium. You basically create new bicarb in the cell in the process of secreting a hydrogen ion. It, it, but it's a rather tricky way. We'll talk about it more in the later chapters of, of acidification. But I think it's a fascinating mechanism. One of the things I love about this chapter and and the chapters that follow is that you know there have been new discoveries since then. And this framework still works, even if we found a new channel. As an example, the CO2 is now thought to go through its own channel rather than, you know, I was taught that it diffuses through the membrane, but there's a channel for that again. To Elizabeth Warren. I like how you just <laughs> snuck that in there. Yeah, like, it's still, but functionally, it doesn't really matter that there's a channel for that. The, the concept still serves us. And that's one of the reasons that I like it. So then he gets to this passive mechanisms of proximal tubular transport. And he says that this accounts for one third of all fluid reabsorption. And this is where the early proximal tubule reabsorbing more bicarb than chloride is super important. So the idea is, remember, every time you reabsorb bicarb, which again is sodium going in and hydrogen going out, this is going to result in sodium reabsorption and water reabsorption. And so if you're reabsorbing, functionally, stoichiometrically reabsorbing bicarbonate and sodium, and water is going with that, that chloride concentration is going to rise. And that's one of the things that Roger pointed out in in the very first figure is early on, the chloride concentration rises, and that's going to allow chloride to just flow through the tight junctions down its concentration gradient because the chloride concentration is going to be higher. And as chloride flows down there, water and uh, sodium will follow passively behind that. One of the things about the tight junction is that it can't maintain this osmotic gradient for chloride. Chloride is able to pass through that. So chloride is not an effective osmol. Even though the osmolality is the same on both sides, the tonicity is not, right? Because if something can pass through the membrane, it doesn't, it can't hold water. It's not going to be tonically active. And so that- Like the defenses case, since we're quoting my cousin Vinny tonight, no? Well, I'm sorry, what, because like a what? You ever heard that? My cousin Vinny goes, the defense's case does not hold water. Yes, yeah, like the defense's case. It cannot yes, hold water. exactly. Right. So because chloride can go through those tight junctions, you're going to effectively get a higher and, – and the osmolality is the same on both sides. But most of the osmolality on the tubular side is provided by chloride. And on the basolateral side, it's going to be provided by everything else. 
you effectively get a higher tonicity on the uh, basolateral side of the tight junction because the, the osmolality is the same, but you can't count the chloride as contributing to tonicity because it can pass through that membrane. It's osmotically inactive, weirdly enough, even though everywhere else in the body, chloride is super osmotically important, not here. And so all of a sudden, the tonicity on the basolateral side is higher, and that's going to draw water across that membrane. And Burton Rose mentions that as that water crosses, you get the solute drag bringing across chloride and sodium along with it, which is really cool. Right. So this is just adjusting the relative permeabilities of these different membranes and where they happen to allow essentially free or without much energy reabsorption of fluid. And this is one of the things that I think the chapter leans into, and we're going to see this happen again in the loop of Henley, both in the ascending limb and, the, and in the uh, thick ascending limb, where there are shortcuts that are taken to allow reabsorption of solute and water with less energy intensity. You would think that the proximal tubule, because it reabsorbs you know, two-thirds of the volume that's filtered, it would have the most intense sodium-potassium ATPase activity, but it doesn't. That that intense ATPS activity is it's higher in the distal nephron and in the loop of Henle, and the reason they're able to get away with lower sodium potassium ATPase activity is because they're riding on these areas with passive re reabsorption. So this is something I had a little bit of a question about because I feel like whenever I look at particularly like EM images of the proximal tubule, that's where the most mitochondria are, and the story is. That's because that's where the most fluid and solute reabsorption happens, and that's where the most energy is needed for. And I, I guess I, I have a little bit of a hard time reconciling that amount of fluid reabsorption and that amount of mitochondria with the little amount of active transport that we really can account for here. I think a lot of it is probably driven by sodium potassium ATPase powering ATP that we really need to make in the mitochondria to power that sodium ATPase to keep that gradient strong? Is there something else I'm missing there? That's really where all that ATP is going to the sodium potassium ATPase. There's no free lunch. It all, it's all driven by something. And that's what I really love about this chapter. It keeps coming back to the fact that it's sodium potassium ATPase, sodium potassium ATPase. That, that's, that's where all the energy is going to drive just about everything that's going on there. It's kind of astounding, actually, if you think about how much energy it would take you to carry 84 liters of Saline. It's true. Pretty impressive. It's actually. really heavy. Like, I would definitely be huffing and puffing. So like I guess my, I don't really begrudge it all that ATP. My son weighs like 20 liters of normal saline, and that's pretty <laughs> heavy. So imagining carrying four of him would be very overwhelming to me. I totally get that. <laughs> On page 81, I thought a really interesting paragraph says it's likely that bicarb is the most important of the solutes that promote passive absorption since it is present at the highest concentration, 24 millimoles per liter versus only 5 millimoles per liter for glucose. He walks through that in terms of driving sodium reabsorption, you get direct bicarb reabsorption, which is you know the hydrogen-sodium antiborder. Then you get the preferential bicarb reabsorption proximally that drives that passive chloride reabsorption. And then the bicarb reabsorption, the difference in the hydrogen ion concentration is what drives the formate exchanger for chloride reabsorption. And so in, in this one paragraph, he really points to the primacy of bicarb reabsorption as the, one of the main drivers of uh, sodium and water reabsorption and chloride reabsorption in the proximal tubule, which is pretty interesting and kind of makes you think about acetazolamide in kind of a different realm or different way that we think about who is, who is going to talk about acetazolamide? 
Yeah, I was going to talk about a seasonal night. What do you got for us? Well, so I... You know, you asked us which diuretic we really enjoy, and I really love Cetazolamide. I know we don't use it a lot clinically. I think it's kind of like the forgotten diuretic. Everyone says like, oh yeah, I forgot that one exists too. If you ask a med student, they might remember the mechanism, but most of them might forget. So basically, Cetazolamide was developed in the 1950s, and it has a lot of uses. I don't know if you guys remember from medicine. So like for pseudotumor cerebri, it's also used for glaucoma, and it actually was initially used for epilepsy as well. Altitude sickness Altitude too, right? Altitude sickness, yeah, yeah. So I was looking at all of these reasons about why, because I mean, carbonic anhydrase is in so many different cells, right? So it's not just in the kidney, it's in red blood cells, it's in the GI system, it's in the pancreas. So red blood cells, why do you have carbonic anhydrase there? You have it there to carry CO2 because oh, right. so much of your... So much of your CO2 is carried as, as gotcha. bicarbonate. Oh, so. wow. Okay, okay, okay. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thing Thank you. I've learned it for altitude sickness. Apparently, there was a study done in 1979, the New England Journal of Medicine. They looked at nine mountain years, which just sounds like an amazing career to have just in general. They were all um, sleeping at like 5,360 meters. And a lot of them had at altitude sickness, apparently have like a lot of sleep issues because you have these sleep periods of sleep apnea and hypopnea and things like that. So anyway, so they gave half of them acetazolamide and then the other half they didn't give them to them. And then they reversed it after a couple of weeks. And whenever they got this acetazolamide, that their their arterial saturation of oxygen actually increased from 72 millimeters or meters to 78.7%. And it reduced the periodic breathing. It increased their alveolar ventilation. And so they all felt that they got actually better sleep and a little bit like improved headaches and things like that. It helps with seizures and migraines because it reduces the carbocation anhydrase inhibitors, reduce um, uh, your pH, then it basically changes the polarization of your cells and then increases your seizure threshold. But we don't really use acetazolamide for headaches. So the anti-epilepsy is, is purely, it, it, the, the metabolic acidosis seems to be protective. Yeah, exactly. So, but they think for like medicines like Topamax that are primarily used for this role, that there's like a different mechanism that Topamax has because it's kind of a weak carbonic anhydrase mm-hmm. inhibitor. Mm-hmm. So Topamax affects like GABA, you know, all those other like weird neurotransmitters. So, and basically blocking- Those are not part of the channel of your enthusiasm. They may be channels, but we're not enthusiastic about Absolutely not. (laughs) But they do block um, voltage-dependent sodium and calcium channels, which also affect the seizure threshold. So that's kind of how they work. And then interestingly, I don't know if you all recall this from medicine, but it was thought to be useful in COPD patients. And this is based off the theory that metabolic acidosis is a respiratory stimulant because, you know, when you have metabolic acidosis, you increase your tidal volume and respiratory rate in order to blow off CO2 in order to compensate for the low serum bicarb. So, you know, in advanced COPD or a COPD exacerbation, patients will present with a primary respiratory acidosis and compensate with the metabolic alkalosis. But if you could perhaps induce a metabolic acidosis or at least lower the serum bicarb with acetazolamide, perhaps that would help COPD patients specifically help them come off ventilators. And so they did tons and tons of studies, but it never really panned out. And this finally culminated in something called the Diablo study, which was a randomized control trial to look at ventilated COPD patients with and without a acetazolamide exposure. And even though um, patients who got acetazolamide, they had improvement in their metabolic alkalosis, there was no change in the duration of mechanical ventilation. So it was like kind of abandoned. And then I thought that this was really interesting. So an 
just kind of going back to high altitude. So in 1925, there was a Peruvian doctor named Dr. Carlos Monge Mandrano, who found that a lot of Peruvians living at high altitude, because, you know, Machu Picchu is there, I think it's like almost 5,000 feet. Machu Picchu is at an altitude of 7,970 feet, 2,430 meters. Anyway, so they have this disease called Monge disease, which he coined. Basically, they have chronic altitude sickness. They have hemoglobins greater than 21, this chronic hypoxemia and pulmonary hypertension. So they found that acetazolamide used in these patients actually reduced polycythemia because basically you get this metabolic acidosis. It increases your ventilation. Then it and improves your arterial pressure, pressure of oxygen. Then you you blunt that erythropoiesis stimulus, you reduce your hematocrit, and then you improve the pulmonary vasculature. It was used back in the like 50s and 60s for ulcer prophylaxis. They first found the alkaline tide thing in the 1930s, and so they thought, okay, there has to be a gastric carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. And then they found it in cells in like 1939. And so in the 1960s, they started to use acetazolamide at high, high doses, like 1,500 milligrams a day to try to reduce gastric acid production. And they actually found that patient's symptoms were better, but they had a lot of side effects. They had I would imagine. Holy moly. Oh <laughs> a God. lot of electrolyte <laughs> issues. And so they used to give them like sodium, potassium, magnesium, salts to try to minimize this effect. So finally, once like H2 blockers and PPIs came out, they kind of just like stopped using acetazolamide. But they found out later that H. pylori has two different types of carbonic anhydrases to help it survive in the acidic gastric mucosa. And so what it does is it has this carbonic anhydrase that neutralizes the acid around it so that way it can survive. And so they think that maybe their carbonic anhydrase inhibitor didn't necessarily reduce your acid production, but was maybe actually treating H. pylori. Uh, oh, that's awesome. That's, that's cool. That's good. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. You're poisoning yourself, but poisoning the bug more. Yeah, oh, that's so right? cool. And then I know I'm like, going on and on but so we're loving this right this yes I know. i'm it's actually amazing. believing this is your favorite and you didn't just pick it yeah well, <laughs> that's great so so i always wondered like why this worked right so apparently it can reduce your csf by as much as 48 percent when almost like 99 percent of the carbonic anhydrase in the core plexus is inhibited which is a huge reduction in your csf so there was this trial called the nordic trial that looked at acetazolamide versus placebo in these patients with pseudotumor subret. Patients reported improved visual symptoms, especially if they had advanced papilledema and, of course, reduced opening pressure when they had acetazolamide. So this kind of really solidified acetazolamide as a treatment for pseudotumor cerebri. Is still a first-line treatment for that disease? I think so, yeah. From what I read, first line is weight loss, but if you can't do weight loss, then acetazolamide. Cool. Yeah, there's a in the core plexus in the cell, there's an NHE sodium hydrogen exchanger. And so that drives an NKCC channel that helps with chloride secretion into the ventricles. And then because of that, the water follows into the ventricles. And so that's how you get all of the CSF production. So once you block carbonic anhydrase, then you reduce the driving force of the sodium um, hydrogen antiporter, and then thus you reduce the flow through the NKCC and then less water into the ventricles. And then finally, when we get to the kidney, I really love this because if you have somebody who's developing metabolic alkalosis with diuresis with like loops or thiazides, then I like to use acetazolamide as well. We actually have like a really interesting case 
this woman, she was coming from a nursing facility. She um, had hypertension, was getting a lot, a lot of loop diuretics, and she came in basically hypochlorinemic and then volume over with metabolic alkalosis. And so the team had been giving her acetazolamide for a couple of days, and they were like, why isn't she really getting any better? She's still needing BiPAP. She's still very alkalotic. Like, we don't really understand. And I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying at the end of page 81, is that her chloride wasn't getting any better. So even though they were reducing the bicarb reabsorption, her hypochloremia wasn't really improving. And so they basically consulted us for that. And so we had just had to say, you know, give KCL, give a little NACL. Like, I, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but this is what you need to do because she's also not going to reabsorb chloride because you're limiting the uh, bicarb reabsorption. So I think that was very interesting. After I read that paragraph, I was like, oh, like, I understand now how chloride and bicarb uh, reabsorption are linked. So... <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's so much the chloride concentration because that's going to be low if you've, if you've, if you've got a high bicarb by, by definition, but it's the chloride presentation. If you don't have enough chloride being presented, then pendrin can't do its right, job. Exactly. So do you guys find that it's a very potent diuretic? I mean, I don't find it works that well in my experience. Occasionally it works, but I've not had a lot of, a lot of luck with it. So from what I read, it's not a potent diuretic, partially because you have all this distal sodium reabsorption that happens. And so this one article that I read actually proposed that if you have someone that you want to use it on who's developing um, metabolic alkalosis on a lupin thiazide, then they actually use the acetazolamide with spironolactone to try to limit the sodium, distal sodium reabsorption. The other aspect of that is that aldactone won't generate the uh, it won't generate the alkalosis because it inhibits hydronine excretion. For your radar. So apparently there's a trial coming out called the ADFOR trial that's looking at acetazolamide use as a second-line agent for heart failure exacerbation patients. So it's in Belgium, and they have patients on loop diuretics, and then they're adding either acetazolamide or placebo to try to see if acetazolamide helps prevent new episodes and lower the total diuretic dose. So I think that'll be really interesting when it comes out. What was the name of that again? What's the name? Advor, A-D-V-O-R. Advor. Yeah, I know Excellent. a lot of cardiologists do use this acetazolamide as an adjunct to their diuretic regimen, and maybe this trial might help tease out, is it really helpful or not, kind of like what Roger is saying. I, I had a pretty severe cardiorenal syndrome that I was able to rescue with acetazolamide once, but, you know. And I wonder, like, given the doses that Amy was talking about giving people for reflux, like, maybe the reason the acetazolamide is not working for us in heart failure is we're not using enough of it, you know? If we're using 1,500 milligrams for reflux, how much should we be using for these people who have, like, really severe contraction? Have you have any of you ever taken acetazolamide? I okay. did for migraines, yeah. Yeah, and so what's the most prominent side effect of that drug? Is it, well, I can't even pronounce the word. Descugia. We are looking at how to pronounce this word. This is a medical term designating the dysfunction of the sense of taste. How do you go about pronouncing it? Discusia. Discu. Zia. Discusia. Just <laughs> Yes, discusia. It's the same flat. thing with Tope. I took that and I took Tope Max and both of them could not taste carbonation. It, like could not sense it. It was very Oh, it bizarre. made it made it foul. So beer and soda, anything carbonated just tastes horrible. Yeah. Completely so, flat. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I would Joel, always like put my nose up to it. Like, how can my nose feel about my tongue? I, I don't understand. Oh, well, you see the bubbles, yet there's no sensation. So clearly you need carbonic anhydrase to sense carbonation on your tongue. And, you know, Joel had the same experience. You went to Nepal, right, Joel? And you went two-thirds of the way up or yeah, something yeah. ridiculous we went, a few we went years 20, ago. 20,000 feet. It was pretty crazy. 
I did not hike to an altitude of 20,000 feet. I did a trek to Everest Base Camp, which tops out at 17,600 feet or 5,364 meters. All that way for a flat beer? <laughs> All that way for a flat beer? <laughs> I was in, you know, I did it in Colorado. I, went, I feel really crappy when I get up the mountain to go skiing and I took it and and it was the craziest thing. And it's not easy. You know, they don't talk about that. And ba back before the internet, I remember this happened. And I went back. And what is the pharmacology book that we all learned? Goodman and from? Gilman. Goodman and Gilman. Yeah, Goodman and Gilman. And I looked in there and I think I found one word somewhere in the, hidden in the in the bowels of it somewhere that actually said that, you know, you don't can't taste carbonation. But it's it's a major side effect. When I took Topamax, it was bizarre because my face also tingled all the time, which is another known side effect. I think also of Diamox. That's what I was, yes. And yes. I was like, I, I honestly felt like all of the tingles had gone from my tongue to my face. I was like, I don't know how to explain this. Has anybody used for nephrogenic diabetes insipidus? Oh my gosh. It is so much more effective than thiazides. It is like a light switch. Now, I'm not absolutely certain on the mechanism, but I believe it is the perfect example of TG feedback as a way to shut down the problem. And I, and I wonder if that's why you don't get great diuretics from this is because you get this massive activation of your tubular glomerular feedback. There's a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is where I learned about it. And this patient that they were talking about went from uh, 15 liters to like two liters with, with acetazolamide. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. It I was stunned at how effective it is, and I've, and I've had uh, pretty good luck clinically. I absolutely totally forgot about that. I can picture the, the letter of the editor and the reference to studies in rats. Yep. And what kind of dose do you use for that? Just 250 BID. It's pretty standard doses. And then and then last thing is acetazolamide, just because I think Roger and I were both poking at our eyeballs while Amy was talking, for use for glaucoma to reduce production of uh, vitreous humor, to reduce intraocular pressure. Not that we have a fancy mechanism, just that we both had the same eye pain at the same time. And I'm sure like the one ophthalmologist who's listening to us is, is losing their by now. But I think it's relevant because, you know, I think the, you mentioned just how what a major effect it can have in the CSF and it has a major effect in intraocular pressure, but it's not a really big nephrology drug. It's fun. We can use it in special situations, but nobody's using it for heart failure. Nobody's using it for much of anything. You're uh, hurting Amy's maybe, feelings. It may be because it's weak. It may be because the rest of the nephron picks it up. But I don't think it's just that the rest of the nephron picks it up because if that were the case, you'd still have bicarbonaturia. And, you know, whenever I give um, acetazolamide, I say, well, how are we going to test it? They go, well, see if the bicarb went down. Go, no, don't see if the bicarb went down. Dipstick the urine. If you don't have a urine pH of eight, it's not doing its job. And go up on the dose. And if you're not getting a, an effect, then give up on it because you're not going to see that. So let me ask you, because you said like the people don't use it for heart failure. Here, I have seen the cardiologists use it as a, to, to bring down the bicarb. And I've never really believed that it actually brings it down that much. But what is the most that you've seen a good dose bring down the bicarb? It's not used for heart failure because it's not, I'm saying it's not a strong sodium diuretic. If they're using it heart failure for metabolic alkalosis, yes. that might be another reason. Yeah, they're but, using it for I that. Mean, I usually don't like it. I say it doesn't work. And then lo and behold, somebody gives it and the bicarb drops from 30 to 28 to 24 in two days. So, you know, never say never. Yeah. And yeah. it's always worth a try. And, I, and when I do give it, I do give, I don't start at low doses. I give it IV and I give 250, one dose. And if the urine pH doesn't go up, I go up to 500 IV. And that's where I've stopped. But I don't know if you can go up more than that. So, so you're telling me that cardiologists consult you for alkalosis? I feel like cardiologists consult me before won't pee. And then I'm like, by the way, did you notice they were alkalosis? You get the call for alkalosis when the bicarb hits 40. Yep. That's the magic yeah. number yeah. <laughs> when you start to get the consult. And so if you can like introduce the acetazolamide at 38, 39, you save yourself that middle of the night consult. That's like the, the second year. I'm telling you, if, 
if you switch to aldactone at 28, you won't go up. So you'll avoid it. I had been taught when you prescribe it, you should only prescribe it with like some endpoint, like three days. And then I find myself rewriting the order because it still didn't do anything. But I think that you do occasionally have one or two of those patients who dramatically fall where having that little stopgap is helpful. I don't think there's a real downside to trying it. I mean, No, but I, you know, just along those lines that I also think it's a really important drug in other disease processes like, like in glaucoma, but I had an elderly patient who was put on it by an ophthalmologist for glaucoma and, and who's feeling nauseous, not feeling so good, came in and had just this profound acid acidosis, a metabolic acidosis. So this is when I was like, well, in the cardiac patients, like the bicarb didn't really drop that much, but this patient, it just really had a big effect. So, and it made me just wonder how frequently patients are being prescribed this, these drugs without an end date. Well, I think it's a really good point because what we're talking about is someone with a metabolic alkalosis. By definition, you have a metabolic alkalosis, you have to have something that maintains it. And that's often a low GFR or a very sodium avid state or low chloride or something. But when you give it to somebody with a normal GFR, you know, they, they really can have a, a fairly uh, active alkuresis, if you will, you know. So, and I think, I think you're right. They can drop by quite a lot and get pretty, you know, not feel so well. Okay. Amy, that was awesome. And I can see why acetazolamide is your favorite diuretic. I am looking forward to next month's episode on your favorite diuretic. Who's, who's got loops? Who's doing loops? I'm doing loops. Oh, now you have set the bar. Ooh, no <laughs> doubt. Amy, like, drop the hammer on that one. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. So the chapter then moves on and talks about the neurohormonal influence. There were two that he talked about. It talks about angiotensin 2 acts primarily in the S1 segment, stimulates a lot of sodium reabsorption, but doesn't affect and bicarbonate reabsorption. So there's no acid base alterations with angiotensin 2, which was reassuring, and then talked about dopamine antagonizing sodium reabsorption, blocking the sodium potassium ATPase, and blocking the sodium hydrogen antiporter, possibly providing some of the diuretic effect of dopamine. Any thoughts on that from anybody in the group? I still have a hard time about getting excited about dopamine. This may just be like a, a intrinsic failure of myself, but like once I heard about renal dose dopamine not being a thing and definitely not helping anyone. I kind of got less excited about dopamine anywhere else in the kidney. It works really well in sheep. It just doesn't work in us. We got to go be vets then, Melanie. That's the answer for us. In terms of the angiotensin 2, and I don't know if you know this, but metabolic alkalosis is like, I love that. And the idea about maintenance and how angiotensin 2 um, favors reabsorption of more of the filtered load of bicarbonate and contributes to maintenance, I think it's really important. And I'm sure we'll get to that when we get to that entire chapter on metabolic alkalosis. But I just wanted to call that out. Well, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, if, if angiotensin 2 is a kind of a, a blood pressure volume mechanism, you know, you, you don't really want to excrete anything. You know, you don't want to you know, to excrete bicarb, you've got to excrete a sodium bicarb. So you're going to lose, you're losing sodium. And it kind of makes sense from a teleologic standpoint to make bicarb reabsorption, if you will, whether it's direct or indirect, uh, more avid. This wasn't mentioned, I don't think explicitly in the text, but I was interested in then volume expansion with dopamine antagonists, like antipsychotics. And it is a pretty profound side effect of Clozeril. It's been a while since I even thought about that. But I think it's more a theoretical side effect than in a lot of the antipsychotics. But I guess in Clozeril, volume retention is a pretty significant side effect. So I was interested by that. So Clozeril is an anti-dopaminergic drug? 
yeah, a lot of the antipsychotics have that. You know, they all most of them have lot multiple effects. But did they cause renal failure in sheep? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Before you go on, actually, though, I just wanted to point out this figure three, six, which we yeah. screwed by, that's Pendrin. So this is this is tricky, actually. I looked this up because I was curious mm-hmm. about it. This is not Pendrin. It's like a Pendrin cousin that lives in the proximal tubule. Okay, so let's, let, right. before we go deep here, can we describe figure three, six for the people that are listening on radio? And don't know what it looks like. So there's a the three six is a it's got a cell. It's got the sodium potassium ATPase. It's got your sodium hydrogen exchanger. It's got your your formate shuttle for reabsorbing chloride, which we didn't cover, and I don't think we need to cover. Do you know this about me? I actually hate chloride. Yes, yes, we do. You, you have I think mentioned the world that, knows Melanie. About it by now. Yes. I think the the title of our first episode is "Chloride is Evil." How can you love metabolic alkalosis and hate chloride? How does yeah, that work? well, is it, is it, is chloride evil or is chloride just benign? Is chloride insignificant? That's really the question. It's not worth our time. It's a supporting yeah, character. And it was completely insignificant until Pendrin came around, to be honest. I, I told everyone it's absolutely meaningless. It has no significance by itself, certainly as a concentration. It only reflects the sodium and the bicarbon ion gap, and it, you don't do anything to chloride. But, so that's true from a concentration standpoint, but from a total body standpoint, it is relevant at least for metabolic alkalosis. But you know, people look at hypochloremic this or hyperchloremic that is really, I, I hate those terms because it's all relative to what the serum sodium is. I knew we could be good <laughs> friends. Uh, I knew it. <laughs> so, but that molecule that Melanie was talking about in 3.6 is on the paratubular side. It is a... Pat- the audience, we're blowing kisses. <laughs> <laughs> The, on the paratubular side, there's a potassium chloride co-transporter. This is how chloride is getting out of the cells. Potassium is going to be flowing down its concentration gradient. Remember, very high concentration of potassium inside the cell. It's going to be flowing down its concentration gradient out of the cell onto the basal lateral side, and it's carrying chloride along with it. And Melanie points out that's pendrin, or at least functionally the same as pendrin, but then Josh crushed her. Sorry, I wanted to clarify my understanding, and maybe I have this wrong, is that Pendred, or Pendran was the anion-anion exchanger on the tubular lumen side, that it's the, the in this figure, 3-6, it's the chloride formate exchanger. Uh, Pendran can also add as a chloride iodine exchanger, as well as a chloride bicarb exchanger in place of the, the other large anion. And so mutations in pendrin lead to pendred syndrome which is a combination of hearing loss and goiter and i thought this was actually cool the goiter part comes from the inability to transport iodine into the thyroid because it does that chloride iodine antiporting toward each other but pendrin which is the molecule we're, we're talking about is not actually this molecule it's it lives in the cortical collecting duct primarily SLC A6, or A4 is Pendrin, and this one is SLC 26A6, which is like a close cousin. Was Pendrin understood when this The idea in? of Pendrin was understood, but the gene that encoded Pendrin was not yet understood. Well, I don't even know Pendrin had a name. I just looked in the, the uh, index or the... It's, it's not there's there. No, and, there's no and Pendrin. I think what's cool about some of the like really detailed electrophysiology these folks can do is they can detect how many ions of X go across the membrane and how many ions of Y come back. And they know there's got to be a thing there that does that thing, even though they can't figure out 
what the heck it looks like or what protein it is or what structure it has. They know it does this stuff and they know it regulates it by adding that to the solution. They can see the footprints. They just can't. Yeah. Find I mean, you can, you can hypothesize and, and know that this thing exists. You know, it's like the, the Higgs boson. Like we knew it existed before we found it for like years and years and years, but it's really exciting when you actually do find it. So that's, that's what's exciting about the, the Pendrin molecule that is to come. So the, I just looked in the Nature Genetics article describing the Pendrin syndrome and identifying the gene was 1999. So simultaneous with the book. This particular transporter was described in 2006 by Pierre Aronson's lab. So it was after the book. But again, getting to that old point where there's all these details, but the original concepts still work and serve us. Okay. So next he talks a little bit about capillary uh, hemodynamics is the next segment. And so we've talked a lot about the fluid moving from the tubule to the basolateral side, but that doesn't get you anything. You got to get from the basolateral side into the capillaries to return it to circulation. And we're back to Starling's law. It's pretty simple here. Very low capillary hydrostatic pressure because you've already gone through the afferent arterial. You've gone through the efferent arterial. You've lost all your pressure. You've gone through autoregulation. There's very little capillary hydrostatic pressure. There's a very high capillary oncotic pressure, right? Because you have filtered all this plasma at the glomerulus. You have a filtration fraction of 20 to 35%. Losing all that plasma water results in a very high concentration of albumin or whatever your protein oncotic pressure is being driven by. You don't have much hydrostatic pressure, so you don't have anything pushing stuff out of the capillary. You got very high oncotic pressure pulling stuff into the capillary. So this is the perfect setup for really good reabsorption in the peritubular capillaries. This mechanism that Joel described, to me, it's absolutely incredible. And it's so cool that the fluid that leaves the, the glomerulus is now perfectly set up to promote reabsorption from the proximal tubule because the low, as he mentioned, the low hydrostatic pressure and the high oncotic pressure. Now, let's just take it a step further and let's make it worse. Let's say that you are pre-renal and you're pre-renal and you have a renin angiotensin system that gets turned on and now you've got more angiotensin. So what does more angiotensin do? It clamps down the efferent arterial. What does that do? It increases the filtration fraction. What does that do? A greater percentage of fluid goes in through the glomerulus, which means that the fluid that's leaving the the efferent arterial is now even more concentrated from the the protein standpoint, which means there's even more oncotic pressure to pull out fluid. And the the hydrostatic pressure is even lower now because of the efferent vasoconstriction. So I think this is one of the most amazing things of the kidney is that when you're pre-renal, that you augment this whole proximal reabsorption. It's all free. It's all just by clamping down the efferent arterial and it's free. It's absolutely free. The same free. process that allows you to maintain GFR despite the decreased volume also allows you to pull back that fluid, which is exactly what you want. It is. It's a perfect design. It's incredible. It's so smart. It's we ridiculous. We like breezed through this in the first episode, I think, and talking about how you filter all this stuff only to reabsorb almost all of it. And the idea that you filter even more of it in this critical illness scenario that Roger's outlining. But then you can reabsorb all of it, get even more urea toxin clearance, the small molecules you really want to get rid of, and even less urine volume and retain the volume that you really need. That was like the critical piece of insight that I feel like this section of the chapter really really brought home. And this is actually an example of glomerular tubular balance. This was the next concept that they have in the chapter, and this is you know something that we've been talking about from the beginning. That the, one of the essential functions of the kidney is it's going to have all this filtration, but it better reabsorb 
all of it or nearly all of it, or you're going to pee yourself to death. And this is what we call glomerular tubular balance. Whatever kind of glomerular filtration you have, you have to balance it with tubular reabsorption. And we're going to call that glomerular tubular balance. And that is one of the guiding principles of how, of how the kidney works. There's a little bit of hand waving in this section. It sounds like we don't know exactly how it works, but Rose does a nice job of laying out why it's essential and how what seems like very small mismatches of 1% or 2% could result in lethal fluid depletion. He talks about a 1.5% increase in GFR from 180 liters a day to 183 liters a day. And if you don't match that reabsorption, you're going to lose three liters a day, and that's going to be, you know, you're not, you're not going to be able to do that for very long. There are three processes. You know, what we ultimately need to do is make sure we don't overload the distal nephron when we make these fine adjustments to the urine. We need to have a small volume of fluid going through that distal nephron, and he lays out three processes that do this. So one of them is glomerular tubular balance that we just talked about. One of them is TG feedback, tubular glomerular feedback, and the last one is autoregulation. Just a reminder, TG feedback is constantly monitoring the sodium delivery at the exit of the loop of Henle. Make sure there's not excess sodium, or in this case, it's actually specifically chloride delivery. And if there is excess chloride, that is fed back to the parent nephron, and you get constriction of the afferent arterial. So any nephron, any individual nephron that has too much filtration and not enough reabsorption, we will shut down that nephron. That's TG feedback. Autoregulation was the myogenic reflex. So if you have increased pressure that's going into an afferent arterial, that afferent arterial, just in response to that pressure, will constrict down so you don't transmit that increased pressure to the glomerulus. That's autoregulation. And then the GT feedback, the glomerular tubular feedback is multiple mechanisms, but all they do is they maintain a set fraction of fluid that is presented is going to be reabsorbed. So you don't get massive overloading uh, fluid being delivered distally. Anybody have any thoughts on GT balance? It can be glomerular tubular balance? This makes it sound like a, a primary thing. So if your GFR goes down, up, you you have to increase more reabsorption. I kind of thought of it in the past as well. If your GFR goes up and you and you don't filter enough, then you'll get behind and then you'll kick in something. It's up front. It's smarter than that. It's not catching up. It's actually preventing the problem in the first place. And I think that's quite remarkable. I think that the idea that I took away from this, and it's in really in figure 3.9, the proximal tubule is like a very rapacious agent in your negotiation for your future fluid balance contract. And so instead of taking 15 or 20% or whatever it is your agent's supposed to take, the proximal tubule is going to take 55 to 60% no matter what it is you put into it. And it's if you put in a liter, it's going to take 550 or 600 cc's back. If you put in two liters, it's going to take twice that. If you put in half a liter, it's going to take half of that. And so no matter what the, the amount of GFR is you have, it's going to take the same fraction or the same percent back to help give you a reasonable amount of tubular fluid to deal with downstream. In a way, that's absolutely what's happening. But in a way, I've again, I was wrong, but I hadn't thought of it that way because I always think is, you know, 
the rest of the tubule can make up for what the proximal tubule can't do. And it's all, if things go too much downstream, you'll pick it up later. But I think that what you're saying here is that it's actually proactive and not retroactive. It's actually proactive in dealing with this very early. And this is a relatively new concept to me. I didn't, I learned a lot from reading I'm this. I'm not this sure how it. proactive it is. It's just kind of doing the same thing with whatever comes in. It's just taking the same percent every single time, no matter how much that is. If the idea was to not overload downstream, wouldn't it make sense to take us? A set amount minus a set amount, not just a set percentage. That'd be fancier. And, and I don't know if we know that it does that. I think that straight line in figure 3-9 that like the more GFR you put in, the more proximal tubular reabsorption you're going to get. And that's just a fixed factor at every single whatever nanoliter per minute of, of GFR you put in. Well, in the end, it obviously works extremely well because when you're in steady state, you're in steady state. And then he closes this section of the chapter with a story of a kid who was born with no brush border. Here's an example of what happens if you don't have a proximal tubule. And it's like the worst case of proximal uh, renal tubular acidosis. The kid's running around with a bicarb of 12. And he kind of says, this is what happens to you if you can't reabsorb bicarbonate. Anybody else get any other lessons from that? I'd never heard of that disorder. So I looked it up because... <laughs> But, you know, one of the things as an adult nephrologist, I always thought, well, oh, we don't, notwithstanding medications like tenofovir and myeloma, we don't see that much in the way of RTAs or at least proximal RTA and, and classic distal. And I just always thought, oh, well, there's all these RTAs in pediatrics. But actually, there's not that much RTAs in pediatrics either. I mean, I do a lot of transition to adult care and those kitties aren't growing up and coming to my clinic. And in fact, the most common cause of proximal RTA is not this defect in brush border, but cystinosis, which is extremely uncommon, but is the most common cause of Fanconi syndrome in children. And I just think that's worth noting. I have one patient with this. If you get one patient, you get to retire. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a common defect, and it may be because the proximal tubule is so important that you cannot withstand a lot of different defects and survive. Right. I don't That's know. right. It's only a disease if it's survivable, right? If it's a lethal mutation, you never get to the adult transition clinic. And in cystinosis, they don't start at day one. I mean, they have severe defects from the beginning, but it worsens. So that may be why this can go forward. The next section, it's titled The Primacy of Sodium Reabsorption, but I don't think it, that's a great title. The best part is this description of bicarb, because this is something that we see clinically all the time, that if you read in these reports, what's the TM for bicarb? Oh yeah, people will start to spill bicarb as their, as their bicarb gets over 24 or 28. That's the TM for bicarb. So, But then but then you start taking care of patients and we've all seen, we were just talking about these patients with heart failure. They get a bicarb of 40 and 50 and their urine pH is still five. You're like, where's this TM for bicarb? What's going on there? And he talks about that is that this TM for bicarb is very tightly associated with sodium handling. And that usually when they've done these experiments that they say, oh, the TM for bicarb is 28 is because they've done sodium bicarbonate infusions. And so along with the rising bicarb, carbonate, these patients also get volume overloaded. And when they get volume overloaded, they stop reabsorbing sodium. And when they stop reabsorbing sodium, they stop reabsorbing bicarbonate and they get bicarbonaturia. But what we are seeing when we see these patients with very high bicarbonate, 
We have patients that are volume depleted because we're pushing the diuretics so hard. And in the face of volume depletion, at least in the rat, they said they can yes. get the bicarb up to 60 without getting significant bicarbonaturia. And that he writes the line, he says that the TM for bicarbonate, may, there may not be a TM for bicarbonate. As long as the patient is isovolemic or, or hypovolemic, they can keep reabsorbing uh, bicarbonate right up to very, very high levels. I think figure 310 in the chapter is probably my favorite figure in the entire chapter. This is like back in the good old days when you could publish a paper where you have three authors that studies three experimental subjects who are the authors themselves. <laughs> and so each of the triangle, circle, or empty circle in this figure are one of the authors. And they just loaded themselves up with an isotonic bicarb infusion to see what happened to their serum bicarb and their bicarb excretion. And that's, I think, where the number, the 26, 28, 30 number that Joel is citing comes from. It's like probably three white dudes in the 1940s who had a evening where they just decided to get loaded up with bicarb and see how things went. That's why nephrologists uh, know how to party, because when we talk about getting loaded, <laughs> we're talking about bicarb. <laughs> the, the way it's described as a TM, I just think that's misleading because, you know, I, I look at it more physiologically, because if, you, if you've got a normal systemic pH, if your bicarb goes up to 25, you should be dumping bicarb. There's no reason for you to reabsorbing it. It's not about a TM issue. And the reason you can that it goes up to 40 is because you're chloride or volume or chloride deficient. I didn't like the way this was explained. I mean, I hate to criticize this this it's amazing book, Bible. but you're I just thought this it. was a little yeah, I just thought it was a little bit deceiving when he talked about the, you know, the maximum reabsorption because it's not about maximum reabsorption. It's really about what would be appropriate for someone's pH. And if we all took you could I could inject an amp an amp an hour in you, and if you're if you're euvolemic, you'll dump it out as quickly as I put it in because that's the appropriate thing to do. Or you'll stop. It's breathing, not that you can't right? reabsorb it; it's because you're supposed to dump it. I rest my case. Yeah, uh, you know, the TM concept is I still think is a useful way to think about this. It's what I use to teach proximal RTAs when I talk about this. I talk about them having a TM for bicarbonate, and that this is decreased as you damage the proximal tubule. Then we get to the glucose, which is like, if, if Burton Rose only knew how important this section was going to be, I know. right? This has become <laughs> the most important aspect of the proximal tubule, the revitalization of the proximal tubule through the use of flozins. And so we are introduced to the SGLT2. Uh, there's SGLT1 and SGLT2. He's very cagey. He doesn't give us the name until late in the paragraph. But uh, And because nephrology hates you, which one comes first? SGLT2, and then SGLT1 comes up. And what's worse about it is how many sodiums go in through SGLT2? One. And how many sodiums go through SGLT1? Two. Two. <laughs> okay, Josh, walk us through it. So the idea here is that, like we talked about before, the passive transport of sodium allows you to move glucose from the tubular fluid into the intracellular space. And here in the proximal tubule, that happens through two co-transporters, SGLT2, which is in the most proximal of the proximal tubule, and SGLT1, which is in the more distal proximal tubule. SGLT2, which occurs in the immediately filtered glomerular filtrate, plenty of sodium around, maybe some glucose around, maybe a little bit more glucose if your glucose is poorly controlled. It takes one sodium going along with your glucose to get transported across the cell membrane and reabsorbed. As that glucose concentration goes down, it's going to be harder and harder for you to find the glucose and harder to drive it across, but there's still plenty of sodium there. And so you use the SGLT1 in the more distal part of the proximal tubule. For every two sodiums that you can get together, which are plenty, you still 
drive the movement of glucose to be reabsorbed. Since it really, by the end of the proximal tubule, there shouldn't be any glucose left behind in the, in the setting of euglycemia in the absence of SGLT2 inhibitors. Excellent. Excellent. And then he goes through this calculation about what the TM for glucose was. He says that the threshold of maximum reabsorption is 375 uh, milligrams per minute. And then he says, and then you can back calculate what the maximum glucose concentration can be. And he uses a GFR of 125 a minute. And he comes out with a TM for glucose of 300 milligrams per deciliter. And then he kind of, he got- I wrote all this down, by the way. I want my time back. And then he's like, actually, not really. And then he says, that's right. And he says, not really. That's what, why. <laughs> actually. Why though. not really, Anna? What's what's happening there? Because there's splay. It was a tease, right? It's a tease. He does it his calculation. Was. This is the second time this has happened in this chapter. Come on. Where I get the explanation for splay was from either his blue book, the old blue book or the yellow book. But he said that we always think of the kidney as one giant nephron. But it's not one giant nephron. It's a million different nephrons, and they all have different characteristics. And some of them are going to be less able to hold on to glucose than others. And he describes in this chapter, he talks about some of them have large glomeruli, and some of them have a small glomeruli, some of them are long proximal tubules, some of them are short proximal tubules. But the point is, is that we first detect glucosuria when the weakest of them, the weakest link can't reabsorb all that glucose. It's going to spill some glucose, and then we'll detect that in the urine. And so that's the that's the idea of splay, is that not every glomeruli is as good as the best glomeruli. So does anybody uh, have a patient with um, renal glycosuria? I have one patient, and it's, you know, he got referred to me years ago, and it's a remarkable thing. He's got lots of glucose in his urine. His serum glucose is always normal. I suppose there's more sophisticated tests you can do, but you don't really, I don't think you really need to do it. And what would be interesting is, you know, if he's protected from renal disease from that, you know, he's, a, he's got genetic SGLT2 inhibition, but it's a pretty neat thing when you see that. And, uh, but it's pretty rare, but I have there, one patient. There are actually mouse I... models of SGLT2 knockout mice. I, I know Sue Quaggan had one in the lab called the sweet pea mouse because it's glycosuria. Aww, sweet pea. Um, but those mice have some really messed up phosphate bone metabolism stuff going on down the line that I don't know how well the, how well understood that is. Anything Humans don't though. get anything like that. And so our yeah. feeling is that SGLT2 inhibitors as medicines are safe, but maybe there's something different about a genetic knockout. Maybe there's some other tissue that these, these genes are expressed in. Maybe some other well, one, of the, totally one of the early Conagliflos studies did have fractures as one of the side effects, right? It hasn't been reproduced in subsequent studies. It was one of the early, I think it was Canvas. I'm going to go with Canvas had a fractures. Amy, what about your patient? You said you had a patient you thought it also had this renal glucosuria? Oh, yeah. It was a lady that we saw in the hospital for like hyponatremia from low solute. But basically, you know, on her UA, she had a lot, a lot of glucose or serum glucose. I mean, she was 80 years old. She didn't have any diabetes or anything like that, little old lady. And she had always had a glucosuria and no one ever told her anything about it. So I told her it was she probably, she probably had this benign glucosuria. And I asked her to come back to see me, but she never did. So <laughs> That's probably why she made it to 80 years old. And of course, you just have to make sure that you're not dealing, it's isolated glycosuria and you're not dealing with complete or partial Fanconis. And so you got to look at everything else. Okay. Uh, and then the rest of the chapter kind of walks through a bunch of different molecules and how they're handled uh, by the kidney. I'm going to go through them quickly. Call it out if you find any of them interesting. Urea 
it, it about half of it is reabsorbed and it it's going to be tightly associated with sodium reabsorption. So any process that's going to accelerate sodium reabsorption, think angiotensin 2, is going to increase your urea reabsorption. Calcium is in this chapter for reasons that were not clear to me because there's very little calcium handling in the proximal tubule. I think calcium handling here is kind of interesting just clinically. So like in my stone clinic, when I see patients with hypercalciuria and then high urine sodiums, and you know, I don't think they have a genetic cause for the hypercalciuria. Definitely I've seen like a low salt diet. So limiting their urine sodium limits their uh, urine calcium. And so I, I do think that this is kind of something to think about. And that's, again, why we use normal saline for patients who are hypercalcemic, right? So to limit the, the passive reabsorption of calcium. So I I think even though it's like kind of like an afterthought, I think clinically this is an important concept. So we think that there's passive reabsorption of calcium in the proximal tubule, or is that mostly loop of Henle in the distal convoluted tubule? So there, there is passive reabsorption in the proximal tubule, but I think it's mostly like through solvent drag. Is solvent drag, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's the way that it happens. And so by infusing normal saline, then you kind of limit the solvent drag aspect of it. And gotcha. building on what Amy said, I was taught that thiazides help limit hypercalceria because of their direct effect on, and we'll get to distal convoluted tubule later, but in, I think most people now agree that the benefit is because of the mild volume depletion that ensues and then the proximal reabsorption of calcium. So even if we don't have great transporters, I think it's really important that we reabsorb calcium proximally when there's mild volume depletion. There is an alternative theory for how thiazides reduce urine calcium besides what we've just described here. We will discuss more of this in Chapter 4. Sit tight. I think the other piece of calcium handling that's not really in this section is the role of the hormonal stuff. I'll be honest, I have not read the whole textbook. This is an adventure for me to read the whole textbook with you all. You might even call um, it a two-year mission. It is no, a two-year mission. No, I thought it was like one year, one... and you just pulled that. That would be kind of dramatic. No, nope, you signed up. We're doing one chapter a month. It's. I mean, you know, you can do the math yourself. <laughs> it, it, it may be a three-year mission. But I think what's important here is that the, the one alpha hydroxylase enzyme, the enzyme that turns 25 vitamin D into active calcitriol 125, 125 vitamin D is here in the proximal tubule. It's the thing that activates all the vitamin D in the kidney is here. So actually, Josh, I hate to burst your bubble. So I actually just read this article in Jason that was saying that actually there's more one alpha hydroxylase protein and mRNA in the distal convoluted tubule. I heard that too. Yeah. No, I heard that too. And I thought it must have been a this typo. This is late yeah. breaking. No, no, no. So, but in the proximal tubule, at least like what the C. Jason article from Orson Moe says, is that there's actually more 24 hydroxylase, which inactivates the active calcitriol. Wait, 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 rewind that. So you have vitamin D, then it, it gets hydroxylated by one alpha hydroxylase into 125 OH vitamin D. Gotcha. And then it gets hydroxylated again by 24 hydroxylase and the 2425 vitamin D. That's D that's an inactive metabolite. That's inactive. So basically what happens in the proximal tubule, you have a lot of 24 hydroxylase and the distal convoluted tubule in the, in the proximal tubule too, you both you have one alpha hydroxylase in both locations, but it's more in the distal convoluted tube. I was like, oh my gosh, he never talks about this, so I looked it up. But say you give somebody calcitriol, then that vitamin D binds with the vitamin D receptor, goes into nucleus, it actually downregulates one alpha, so hydroxylase, and then upregulates the 24 hydroxylase. 
So in effect, limiting the amount of active, the amount of 125 that you have in your system, right? Because you, you don't need that much calcium. Anymore. I didn't mean to burst your bubble, Josh, but. No, that's great. I, I, I think the like the vitamin D, PTH, and then the physiology that emerges over the 20 years since the book has been published, the FGF23 clotho FGF receptor stuff, which is all stuff that I still find confusing, despite the fact that like Miles Wolf himself has explained it to me on multiple occasions, and he's really good at explaining it, I'm just really dumb at remembering it, is not here. And that's, I think, the part that if and when we get a new update or or when folks find really good reviews, and, and we'll post one in the show notes of a review of that, that axis of, of calcium phosphate regulation. That's the part that's not here. And I find that that's, to me, one of those tricky things that I keep getting tested on and keep having a hard time with. Okay. So we're good on calcium. Okay. So the next molecule is phosphate. And again, you have a sodium phosphate co-transporter for reabsorption of phosphate. We take three sodiums to move one phosphate. And whenever you see these multiple sodiums to get one molecule, that means you get it at all. Just like we get all the glucose when we finally use two sodiums to get the final glucose, we reabsorb or can reabsorb all the phosphate proximally. So if you're hypophosphatemic, your urine phosphate should go nearly to zero. Am I, am I right on that one? Yeah. And that, that he points to three factors that are going to regulate phosphate reabsorption proximally. And again, this is going to be something that's going to be dated because of we know that we have phosphaturic hormones that we're not aware of at this time. But he points to PTH, which is going to decrease phosphate reabsorption. He points to phosphate itself regulates phosphate uh, reabsorption. So the higher your phosphate, the less reabsorption you're going to get. So you'll pee out extra phosphate. That makes sense. And then he points to metabolic acidosis as another thing that'll suppress phosphate reabsorption. And that ends up being super important because having phosphate in the urine is going to be one of the buffers that we use to clear out our daily acid load. So you want to have a lot of phosphate in the urine in response to metabolic acidosis. And then just continuing with the the FGF23 clotho stuff, because I put notes to myself here, clotho leads to increased phosphate reabsorption. And FGF23 is going to lead to phosphate wasting in the urine for those of us and trying do, to look for right. And do we know a mechanism what, what actually happens with FGF23? The FGF23 leads to induction of the 1-alpha hydroxylase, which I think some of it's still in the proximal tubule, even if most of it is later. Yeah, uh, Amy, take to, that. Leads to increased production of calcitriol, which then should lead to decreased phosphate reabsorption. I'd love to add two other things about phosphate and the proximal tubule. One, I think it's so elegant that calcium and phosphate are uncoupled here. When PTH causes both to be liberated from bone, we reabsorb calcium here and dump phosphate. Whereas if they were together, then we would be solid stone in the collecting system. And so I love that. And I think that's really elegant. And then the second thing is a question I have for you. I wonder, uh, one of the things I've always noticed, I take care of a lot of patients who have HIV and have been experienced and taken tenofovir, the, the older formulation, disoproxyl fumarate. And uh, as a rule, if they get tro- proximal tubule injury, they always have hypophosphatemia and phosphaturia first. And I wonder why, like anybody who comes in with AKI and a lot of proximal tubulopathy. If you look back, they had phosphaturia that maybe was missed. Why is that first? When you see other tubular damage, like with interstitial nephritis, we often see glycosuria, but not phosphaturia. Why? I don't know. Does anyone have any ideas why that would be first? 
I just think so much of that phosphate's reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. I mean, it's out of proportion to sodium and chloride, and it's in proportion with bicarb. Really, it's like 90 plus percent of phosphate in the proximal tubule. So if you damage proximal tubules, you're going to get more phosphate wasting. But I mean, that's true for glucose and amino acids and proteins too. So, so I don't have an explanation beyond that. We'll keep that keep our minds open. Uh, the next molecule they went through is magnesium. Again, this is similar. In my mind, it's similar to calcium. Not super important in the proximal tubule. We will get to it big time in loop of Henle and distal nephron. And then uric acid, which I couldn't believe how complex uric acid was. It is literally, it's reabsorbed early, secreted mid, and reabsorbed late. Oh my gosh. Very complex. With net excretion. We are clearing uric acid in the proximal tubule. I mean, you can't. You can't create, reabsorb more uric acid than you've filtered, right? This section is why people hate the kidney. This, like, yeah, it's like, this one it gets secreted my hands and up. then it comes back and then it goes back yeah. and then we set it back one more right. time. And, but <laughs> net, net, urate reabsorption is going to be associated with, with just kind of sodium handling. So if you're reabsorbing net sodium, you're going to reabsorb a lot of uric acid. If you're wasting a lot of sodium, you're going to get rid of a, a lot of extra uric acid. Is that fair assessment. And then there's a really interesting section on citrate because that is going to be central to acid-base handling and to kidney stones. You skipped the proteins part. I just skipped the proteins. I feel like as a protein biochemist, anytime the word proteins comes up, I've got to like do a dance and get excited. Okay. Please tell us about protein. No, no, no. I'm not going to take the hosting job from you. But I think the part, again, this is one of those like the stuff has come out since the book has come out. And so like megalin and cubulin, which are two transmembrane proteins that are expressed on the tubular surface of the proximal tubule, are proteins that stick out into the lumen and and grab proteins they go by and reabsorb them. And then they can transcytose or digest those proteins. You can either send the whole protein through the cell back into the bloodstream undigested, or you can digest it back up into little amino acids and send the amino acids back into the bloodstream. Where I thought this was cool, and again, like calcium phosphate mineral bone disease is like my least favorite part of nephrology. I became a nephrologist and not an endocrinologist, so I wouldn't have to worry about hormones all the time, but they're going to keep coming back to me. So what megalin megalin does is it binds the vitamin D binding globulin with vitamin D attached, and that is the substrate for the one alpha hydroxylase in the proximal tubule. That's how you get the 25 vitamin D into the proximal tubule cells is because it gets filtered with its binding globulin to the filtrate, gets bound by megalin, sucked into the proximal tubule, and then hydroxylated while it's in there, and then gets kicked back out in the circulation to be calcified. Amy, you hear that? So it's getting that hydroxylated in cool. the proximal tubule. I'm, Did you hear I'm that? Selling, in the proximal I'm selling tubule. On- okay. And then citrate is going to be highly related to acid base status, that if you have metabolic acidosis, you consume all of your urinary citrate and there's no urinary citrate. Do I have that? Do I have that right? Oh, I was going to say, I think that this is also really interesting because it's part of one of the mechanisms why RTAs um, or distal RTAs give you um, stone disease, right? Because of hypocitraturia. Okay. And I think that's also one of the reasons why, I mean, we're seeing so many patients with kidney stones and we tell them to have ideally a, a diet that's low in animal protein because that if their diet is high in animal protein, then they'll reabsorb more citrate 
proximally and it won't be available then to chelate calcium and limit stones. So. Yeah, getting back to cubulin and, and, and megalin, I, I'm not sure which one it is, but the statins uh, can affect the, effect, can affect them, and you can get tubular proteinuria related to that, which uh, decreases the ability to. It's, it's all tubular proteinuria, and I, you know I see consults all the time for mild proteinuria, which they probably don't have renal disease. It's kind of like the equivalent of you know fake glycosuria, you know fake proteinuria. Well, we're you know it's. Less than a gram, because you can only, I mean, typically you don't have much, you really don't have that much tubular pro proteins being filtered to, to not fill, to not reabsorb. So it's low grade, you know, 500 or something. But I did not know that. That's very cool. And then the, the last section of the chapter talks about the organic anion and organic cation excretion. And the organic cation has a very unusual uh, hydrogen cation exchanger on the tubular side. I, that's just weird. I've never seen anything like that. And then the organic anion was very poorly described completely, even though that one, and, and it, really important. And, and, you know, and the key here, and what, which was, is neat, is that the, when we talk about organic anions and organic cations, this is everything we've been talking up to now has been super specific. There's this very specific glucosodium exchanger. There's a very specific or sodium phosphate exchanger. Here we are talking, no, 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 nothing specific, completely general. We're going to excrete all different types of cations, all different types of anions with these molecules. And it really comes to the kind of the more general clearance role of the kidney is we're going to be able to get rid of anything that's going to be accumulated in the body, whether it's going to be antibiotics, chemotherapeutics, iodine, all the uh, creatinine is going to be is going to be using these exchangers. So it's, it, it ends up being a very different kind of picture of the proximal tubule in this last paragraph. And that's pretty important clinically nowadays, I think, or at least a little important because the, you mentioned creatinine being secreted and, and all of the, what are they, integrase inhibitors like dolotegravir all block that transporter and so block creatinine secretion. And so, and cobisostat, which is in Genvoia and Descove and whatnot. And so you, you should expect that the creatinine is going to go up by 0.1 or 0.2 in all those patients. But you don't get you know, 0.2 for dolotegravir and 0.2 for something else. It just, it's a one-time effect. I want to get back to something Josh, you know, was talking about protein reabsorption because, you know, he he goes into lysozyme, but it's interesting. And he talks about some of the other, you know, amino acids and things that get reabsorbed. Uh, he doesn't talk about light chains and because um, light chains are small, they get filtered and they get reabsorbed and it gets into the two forms of overflow proteinuria where, Basically, you have normal tubular function, but you overwhelm the ability to reabsorb. It's like you overwhelm the ability to reabsorb all the of the tubular of this of the normally filtered low molecular proteins because it just it saturates. They're they're in such high concentration, so that's in myeloma, of course, and you can get overflow proteinuria and have massive amounts of light chain urea. And you know, I've seen eight ten grams a day in certain patients with myeloma, uh, where the tubules are normal, and the other is lysozyme urea, which is Probably only a board question, if anybody's ever seen it, but where you have, it's typical for myelomonocytic leukemia, where it produces massive amounts of lysozyme. And so you get what would look like nephrotic range proteinuria, but it's not albumin. And actually, it's also toxic, so you can have acute renal failure with lysozyme urea. I've never seen lysozyme urea. 
I might have seen it on my boards, but that was a long time ago, and I don't have to take them again. I'm that old, but but certainly we see overflow proteinuria. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that even though you've got this very good mechanism of reabsorbing small molecular proteins, you can overwhelm it if you produce if you have a pathologic situation where you're producing so much of each of those. Or another overflow situation would be somebody with mild proteinuria who gets pregnant and has, you know, a really big increase in GFR and now cannot reabsorb more proteins. And so there's a big increase even when the patient doesn't have a change in their glomerular disease. Which is exactly what you can see with glucosuria too in pregnancy. You just overcome, you filter in GFR so high that you overcome the ability to reabsorb all of it. And I think that's why they'll do glucose tolerance tests because obviously diabetes in pregnancy is a huge deal. But isolated glycosuria is not. Okay. Anybody else have any parting thoughts on the proximal tubule? I think we are living in a proximal tubule renaissance between the SGLT2 inhibitors, the thought that acetazolamide may be the new heart failure wonder drug. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, we will find out. But I just think the proximal tubule is kind of living through a little renaissance. I was wrong when I said it was big, dumb reabsorption. Melanie was right to chastise me at the beginning. I think it was in Twitter. Someone was talking about the GI tract is like one giant glomerulus with the stomach being the glomerulus and the small intestine being the proximal tubule and the distal and the and the colon being the, the distal tubule. And I thought, I can't believe that I've never even thought of that before. But in a way, it's true. You know, you've got a lot of stuff going through. And the collecting body is the stomach, just like the glomerulus. And then the proximal tubule is like the small intestine. So the proximal tubule has brush border. The proximal tubule has microvilli because it has to do all the work. So does the uh, small intestine. And they even have SGLT2 it's, there. They do. And they even have SGLT1. And then, you know, you get to the... SGLT1. One. And then you get to... Yes, the SGLT police here. And then... Uh, <laughs> But, I want badges. <laughs> and then you get to the colon where the colon is, you know, is not a vol- high volume thing. The colon is what really tunes up this. It makes stool and reabsorbs water and everything. It's very similar to the distal tubule and it's no longer twisted. It's kind of like the collecting duct. I think it's a absolutely fascinating analogy. And I've never, ever heard of it before. never thought of it before, but I, I, I just love that. I just love but what I feel comparing like those we two. Mentioned so this can I bill for an upper endoscopy when urine? <laughs> no, but I just, I feel like we have brought, we brought this up in a previous episode where we said in similar as where Melanie teaches the renal course and I, we teach it together with GI and because the kidney comes first, then when, by the time GI starts, I said, you just have to remember that the, the GI, the, it's like basically a big dumb nephron, the GI tract. And so this is where that so comes from. So what you're saying from. is if we had the GI people teach first, then people would love the kidney yeah, they because they'd be all like the this... hard stuff on GI. The big, yeah, the big dumb yeah. nephron. Let's well, yeah. not forget, urine is sterile, yeah. please. <laughs> yeah, it's Good a point. huge difference. Okay, guys, this was awesome. Thanks a lot. 